If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 23, uh, verses 26 through 49. Luke 23, verses 26 through 49. In his commentary on Luke, Pastor R. Kent Hughes uh, tells the following story, and this is kind of a humorous, so that's an anecdotal story, really. And, it's this, and he said, he wrote, A small boy was turning the pages of a book of religious art. And when he came to a picture of the crucifixion, he looked at it for a long time, and a sad look came to his face. Finally, he said, if God had been there, he wouldn't have let them do it. Arkant then writes, so the crucifixion seems, until we understand what it really meant. Today we arrive in our study of the Gospel of Luke at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And, uh, there were, and as we come to it, I, I pray and I hope that you understand what it really meant. There were many people who witnessed and saw the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ on that day, but only a very few understood what it really meant. In Luke's account of the crucifixion, we are introduced to a, a variety of people who witness and play a part in Christ's death as well as uh, his crucifixion. The diversity of characters reveals various responses to, to Jesus, then as well as now. And while we understand that in this passage, Christ is crucified for the sins of the world, Christ being crucified is, is though it's what's happening in the text, from Luke's, uh, in, at least as far as we can tell, just studying the Gospel of Luke, it's really not the main point of this passage. Rather, in the variety of people and the words of Jesus, we see a glimpse into our Savior's character. We see a Savior who is completely in control as he heads to his crucifixion and death. He is not an unwilling and helpless man. He is a willing and sovereign Son of God going to the very death for which he came in order to accomplish the very purpose for which he was sent. Understanding the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in his crucifixion and death helps us to remember the sovereignty of Jesus Christ in our own circumstances of life, and especially when we face death. His own commitment and purpose are examples for us of what, what ought to be our own commitment and purposes as those who take up the, our cross and follow him. In the preceding text of, of Luke uh, 23, verse 20, uh, 26 to 49, uh, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, has just pronounced a death sentence upon Jesus. At the assistance of the people, despite Pilate having found Jesus to be innocent, uh, Pilate nevertheless condemns Jesus to die the death of crucifixion. It is now on this Friday, the final day of his suffering, and where Jesus will die, having been crucified. Up to this point, he had been uh, experienced all sorts of suffering. He had been betrayed, denied, mocked, beaten, tried, scourged, and now delivered to be crucified. And to the casual observer, it would appear that Jesus is helplessly caught up in the plot of his enemies. But what Luke wants us to learn is that as Jesus heads to the cross, he does so in complete control. 
And as I'm online today, we're going to see Jesus' sovereign control over his crucifixion and death. We're going to see four actions, four points, four actions that Jesus takes that reflects his sovereign control in his crucifixion and death. Even as he is being led away by Roman soldiers, as he's uh, in his in his utter weakness, having been scourged and beaten, having been sleepless, still Jesus is in control. In his greatest weakness, Jesus is still the most powerful being on earth. And we see then these four points and uh, four actions that reveal Jesus' sovereign control in his crucifixion death. And the first point is this. That we see, we're going to see really four kind of different scenes that we'll see in this uh, crucifixion death. And the first one is that we learn that Je- Jesus warns. Jesus warns. The first action is that Jesus warns. We see it in verse 26 through 31. Read verses 26 to 31 of Luke 23 with me. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. But if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? In this first section, we see Jesus being led away to the cross. And normally, the condemned was forced to carry his own crossbeam to the place of crucifixion all over his back. But Jesus, considering that Jesus had a sleepless night where he had been interrogated, beaten, and then scourged, Jesus is at this point too weak to carry this large crossbeam all the way to the cross. So the Roman soldiers... Uh, Basically, sees a random man in the crowd. Does anybody see you? Pick up this cross and carry it. And the random man, individual in the crowd, is a man named Simon of Cyrene, we learn. His, he is one who's coming from the country. The fact that he's coming from the country, he's coming from far away. Cyrene is in modern day uh, Libya in northern Africa. And he had likely uh, traveled there to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover like many other Jewish men. Now, he was being constricted to carry the cross of Jesus. He places, picks up the cross, and he places it over his shoulders and follows behind Jesus, it says. The fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention his name, Simon, they tell us that his name is Simon of Cyrene, indicates most likely that he was someone who was known to the people that are, these gospel writers are writing to. They could have just wrote in and just, uh, he just, they just chose a man to carry the beam. But they tell us his name because it's likely that people knew, around them knew of Simon. He was probably known to the Christians. Mark, even, Mark in the, his gospel even tells his readers the names of Simon's son, Alexander and Rufus. Most likely... Simon later became a well-known follower of Jesus Christ because he had carried the cross of Jesus and walked behind Jesus 
And he throughout had the firsthand front seat eyewitness to the death of the Son of God. It was truly a divine appointment for this random observer. And it reminds us how God works. Many times he works in our lives in this way. And many, many of you may have come to Jesus in this way. You were simply a random observer and it was a divine appointment for you to somehow come to see and understand and hear Jesus. We can think of our lives, our testimonies, and many of us can probably attest to how random things were to bring us to saving faith. But it was really God's divine appointment for us. Of course, uh, there was not only that one man, Simon of Cyrene, who carries the cross, but a lot more people following Jesus on this day that on this day that he is going to the cross. Verse twenty-seven tells us that there was a there was a large crowd following him, and the prominent among them was a, a group of women, and they were prominent because they were mourning and they were lamenting him. Luke is the only gospel that records this exchange that takes place between Jesus and the women and the daughters of Jerusalem. Jesus turns to speak to them. So if he turns to speak to them, you can tell that therefore Simon Cyrene is right behind him. So he's hearing all this as well. But in short, what he tells the women is this, is that he says, stop. I know you're mourning me. You're weeping for me. But don't weep for me. But weep for yourselves. He says, he, he tells them, weep, cry for yourselves and, and for your children. He knows that their lives are going to face a, a, uh, something that is terrible that will affect them and their children very soon. Then he proceeds to warn them of the coming judgment upon Jerusalem. He describes how it will be. It will be so terrible that it will be better that they had no children. How fitting it is that today is Mother's Day. And happy Mother's Day, all you moms out there. We're thankful for you and thankful for how God has used you. And, um, but probably for moms as well as dads, but we're Mother's Day. So is that there's probably no greater uh, sense of treasure outside of Christ, something you, that you, one of the ones you love most, besides one of your husband too probably, is uh, your children. They're a great treasure. They're, you've poured your life into you, sacrificed for them in, in, in countless ways. But to see them hurt probably causes you greater pain than when you yourself hurt. And here Jesus warns these women of Jerusalem, says, we for yourselves, because what is coming is going to not only impact you, but it's going to impact your children. You're going to wish that you had never had children. You can just imagine what he's implying is that your children are going to die. They're going to be killed. Not only does it out, but it's, it's the, what is coming is going to be so terrible that uh, he uses a picture uh, from Scripture that people are going to cry out to the mountain and say, oh, fall on us. They're just going to want to end it quickly. It's going to be better to die quickly than to go through the misery that is coming. And what Jesus likely has in mind here is the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Some say it's a reference to the future judgment day. And perhaps it is just like a prof- many of the Old Testament prophecies, it's a near and far fulfillment. There's a, there's a, the, the near judgment of Jerusalem, destruction by Rome, and then there's a far judgment. Weep for yourselves because judgment is coming, he sells these who are weeping for Jesus. 
You know, it would be sad as we came and, and witnessed the, the dying of Jesus and we, all we did was we felt sorrow for him. We cried for him. We, we felt really strong emotions for him. But we never came to a place where we were, we, because we understood what he was doing that we know that he provided the way of salvation and never acquired that salvation for ourselves. That would be a sorrow that would be great. Jesus warns these women, and by extension, all of Jerusalem, that judgment is coming, and it will be far worse than this crucifixion that he is facing. Verse 31, Jesus uses a proverb even that contrasts the green tree, uh, uh, referring to innocent Jesus, and the dry tree, referring to guilty Jerusalem. That if this is what's happening to him, how much, this is the judgment, this judgment he's facing, innocent how terrible will the judgment be for those who are guilty, guilty of sin? But even as Judge Jesus is facing this judgment of crucifixion then, we see that he graciously warns the Israelites. He warns the, those who are mourning. And by implication, he warns them of the need for repentance and faith, turning to Jesus. Instead of weeping for Jesus, they should be pleading with Jesus to save them. Jesus is in complete control. As he warns Jerusalem, that's his first action. We see that Jesus is in control. Secondly, we see a second action that shows that he's in complete control is that Jesus forgives in verses 32 to 38. Jesus forgives. We read again, uh, we pick up the, the passage in verse 32 to 38. And there Luke writes, two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. Verse 32 tells us that Jesus doesn't die alone. Two others are with him. Two other criminals are led along with him to the cross. Matthew and Mark uh, tell us they are robbers, and so oftentimes we refer to them as thieves, and, and it's all right to refer to them as a thief. The most, in fact, most commonly, they're referred to as thieves. The place for crucifixion is called the skull uh, here. Uh, it's Golgotha in the Hebrew, according to John, but we know it probably more familiarly as Calvary, reflecting the Latin. And there, as Jesus arrives at the skull, the Roman soldiers, there they crucify Jesus, and his two criminal uh, 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 fellow uh, uh, sentenced criminals. And this was all done as a fulfillment of Scripture again. All of his life was a fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah 53, 12, that he was numbered with transgressors. Interestingly, all four Gospels state that Jesus', Jesus crucifixion, you, was, they state it quite matter-of-factly. You know, this is the kind of the this is the very moment where where Jesus dies for the sins of the world, and you would think that they would write, and then and then they put his hand here, and they they nailed a hand through there, 
and then they, they, and then they put his hand to his left hand over, and they nailed a hand to that, and then they put his feet together, and they nailed his feet together with one single nail. You would think they, you know, we would probably describe it as if we were eyewitnesses, we would have also kind of described it that way. But they quite simply, most all the gospel writers just simply say, "Oh, they crucified him," and then they move on. It's just sort of strange. This moment that was such a, a significant moment, it's the, it's, it's the crux for which Jesus came. And they just simply say he was crucified. It's most likely, of course, that everyone then, when, whom the gospel writers were writing to, knew about crucifixion. It didn't have to be explained to them. It was already familiar to them. The Roman Empire ruled with a strong arm, and they punished the, the, the vilest of criminals, the rebels, the, the renegades, with the lowliest of criminals, with this kind of persecu- execution. It was reserved for the worst of criminals, always done in a public place so that everyone would see. Roman law, in fact, required that the prisoner be scourged before crucifixion. The actual act, of course, we've already described. Nails through each of his hands or, or wrists. <laughs> nails through his feet together, and then lifted up and placed over a a vertical tree. It was a slow, excruciating death. And Luke, while Luke doesn't go into these details, what he does provide us details about is what Jesus says upon his crucifixion. Look at verse 34. This is what Jesus says. And Luke, makes, uh, Luke is the only one who gives us this detail. So it's, we thank God for the gospel of Luke. What a beautiful picture into Jesus' heart. But Jesus was saying. I'll just stop right there. It doesn't say Jesus said. Jesus was saying in perfect tense. This is, this is something that he was continually saying as they were crucifying him. Here they were crucifying him, and Jesus was saying this, or he was praying this. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. With each nail hammered into his flesh, with each scorn and mockery hurled upon him, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He repeatedly prays that the Father would forgive the sins of his enemies. Jesus is showing to us a love for enemies. That's what he had taught throughout his ministry, Luke 6, 27. And here as his, anim- and his enemies nailed him to a cross and hurled their abuses at him, he prays to the Father, forgive them. How many times do we pray for our enemies and pray, Father, forgive them? A lot of times we like to speak ill of our enemies. We like to malign our enemies. We like to slander our enemies. We like to hate our enemies. But Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. He calls us to pray, learn to pray to forgive our enemies. For they, the reason he prays to the Father to forgive them is that they did not know what they are doing. Certainly they must have. The rulers intentionally sought to kill him. Pilate intentionally condemned him to be crucified. The soldiers did this for a living. But what they did not know was that they, they did not know that they were murdering the Christ. They did not know that they were murdering the Son of God. 
And in Jesus' prayer, we see a man of compassion who is focused on loving his enemies to the end, even praying for their forgiveness because they do not know what terrible deed they were doing. The rest of verse 34 to 38 reveal further those who needed forgiveness. There are the soldiers who cast lots for his garments, even before he's, while he's hanging there on the cross, they're fighting for his clothes. The rulers are there, the sneering, the soldiers are there, mocking. All of these are part of Jesus' death and crucifixion. All of these are witnesses, and Jesus is praying for them, Father, forgive them. Ironically, both of these groups, the soldiers as well as the rulers, mock Jesus for being the Christ, for being the king. And they challenge him to save yourself, save yourself. It is precisely that he is the Christ that he will not save himself. For he has come to save the world and he cannot save himself and the world. It is through his death that the world will be saved. And if he were to save himself, if he were to come down from the cross, then the world, including the rulers and soldiers, including all of us in this room, could never be saved. The inscription posted above, Jesus' head said as much. Jesus was nailed to the cross for being the king of the Jews. The Jews condemned him for blasphemy, but he was not crucified for blasphemy. And though he was charged with treason, Pilate did not find Jesus guilty of treason, but condemned him to be crucified nevertheless. And the inscription above, Jesus explained everything. Jesus truly is the king of the Jews. That is, he is the, truly the Christ. He is truly the Messiah. And therefore, all that the scriptures speak of the Christ and the Messiah are true of him and that he has come to deliver his people, to save his people. And that is why he hangs on the cross. And so he prays, Father, forgive them because he knows that his death will pay their debts. Jesus knows what he is doing, that he is in complete control as he for prays for forgiveness for his enemies. Thirdly, Luke describes a, a third action that Jesus takes that shows Jesus' sovereign control and that Jesus, Jesus saves. Jesus saves in verse 39 to 43. <clears throat> this is one of those sections that are just... Uh, uh, particularly the, the salvation of this uh, lone thief is, is unique to the gospel of Luke, one of the treasures in this gospel. Verse 39 to 43, we read this. Luke writes, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. The other writers, Matthew and Mark, 
tell us that <clears throat> both criminals, both thieves, initially had joined the chorus of, of cries of those mocking Jesus. You know, and that was quite natural, having heard the mocking and insults from the soldiers, from the rulers. The robbers began to say the same thing of, of Jesus. Are you not the Christ? If you're the Christ, save yourself and save us. But somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, one continued mocking while the other ceased. Luke actually uses the Greek word for, for blaspheming. It's translated blaspheming when, uh, to describe the, the hurling of abuse that the first thief, the first criminal, did. He was blaspheming Jesus. One was blaspheming Jesus. But the other criminal, <clears throat> however, perhaps because he had slowly started seeing what Jesus was doing, how Jesus was handling all these abuses at him. He was watching and listening his prayer. He was listening to his repeated prayers, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Perhaps as he's watching his, his humility, watching him, his eyes are opened. He sees Jesus for who he is. And he rebukes his fellow criminal. Do you not even fear God? His response reveals a recognition of who, Jesus is, of, of who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And to speak against the Lord's anointed is to speak against God. He, he himself had a reverence for God. He was developing that. His response also reveals a recognition that he was a sinner. We are deserving of our sentence, he says. He's a sinner that deserves his punishment. Thirdly, what he says is a recognition that Jesus is not deserving of death. This man is innocent. He has done nothing wrong, he says. And lastly, there is a recognition that Jesus saves. For he calls upon Jesus to remember him, remember me, when you come in your kingdom. It is a prayer for mercy. He's thinking of the future. When Jesus, he knows that he is, they're not going to live this day, but he cries out to Jesus with, with his hope, with his faith of life after death. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. It is truly a prayer of mercy. You think about the repentant thief on the cross. It reminds us that salvation is truly by faith alone and not by works. It's faith alone in Christ alone. There on the cross, there was no works that the thief could do. All he could do was confess Christ, and confess Christ he boldly did. But he could not attend church, he could not get baptized, he could not go to fellowship, he could not serve the needy, he could not lead a Bible study, he could not do any number of good works. But nevertheless, Jesus promised to him on this very day that he would be with him in paradise, in heaven. Look forward to heaven, I I hope you guys are looking forward to heaven. It will be a joy that day to find ourselves there in the presence of Jesus Christ. But I think it will be a delight even more to find who else is there along with us. And I'm sure it will be a great surprise to many to find a good number of those whom we hoped upon, upon their deathbed. We shared the gospel with them. We really don't know if they heard us but we shared it nevertheless. And we hope that somehow they heard. 
But because though they were lying there dying and you shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, they heard and they might not have been able to squeeze your hand. They might not even been able to shake, nod their head. But they heard and they believed and they cried out for mercy of, for G, of Jesus Christ and they will be there in glory. And that is the mercy of God. We're truly saved by faith alone in Christ alone like this thief. There were three crosses on Calvary the day Jesus died. In the middle was the sinless Son of God. To his left and right hung two criminals. And Jesus was without sin and didn't deserve to die. But the two criminals on his left and on his right were in sin and both deserved to die. Technically, both asked Christ to save them. Think about that. But only one was saved. The first had asked while blaspheming Jesus. And the second asked while believing in Jesus. As you listen to this, the story of, of Jesus and these two criminals, think about, meditate, and ask yourself, which criminal are you? You may want to be saved and even ask Jesus to save you. You may even have prayed a prayer for Jesus to save you. But if you are not humbly believing, trusting in Christ to do so, to save you from your sins, you will die in your sins. Be sure that you are trusting in Christ. Be sure that you are trusting in him alone to save you from your sins. Jesus here shows us his sovereign control even while on the cross as he saves a repentant thief. Lastly, we see Jesus' sovereign control in his death, in his own death. For lastly, we see that Jesus dies. Jesus dies. Verse 44 through 49, we read, It was now about the sixth hour, but darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Luke records for us here in this, this section of detailing Jesus' death three events that testify to the significance of its significance to all who witnessed it. First is the event of, the, of darkness all across the land. Luke tells us that from noon to 3 p.m., that's the ninth to the twelfth hour, <clears throat> or the, excuse me, sixth to the ninth hour, darkness fell over the whole land. Now, as to what caused this darkness, none of the gospel writers tell us. It's simply that, that somehow the sun was obscured. 
It was, uh, some people surmise that it was a solar eclipse. Uh, the moon came in front of the, so, of the sun. But that would not have been possible because it was the Passover. And the Passover always occurs on the full moon. And, and maybe you didn't know this, but uh, whenever this, uh, the full moon, uh, a solar eclipse can happen. In fact, solar eclipses can only happen on new moons. That's uh, science for the day. But in the Old Testament, darkness was a symbol. It's a symbol of, of judgment of sin. You can look at Amos chapter 8, verse 9 for uh, cross-reference. And so therefore, when the darkness covered all of Israel, as Jesus hung on the cross, it symbolized God's judgment of sin. There, as Jesus hung on the cross, God was judging the sins of the world. And he was judging the sins of the world all upon Jesus on the cross. And that's why we don't see it here, but in, other, in the other gospel writers, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There on the cross, Jesus, who had always had, from eternity past, had a fellowship with the Father that was only, that only he and the Father had. At that moment, the God, the Father, turned away from him, separated from him in a way that caused him agony that could, did not compare to anything else he had experienced. There on the cross, the darkness reminds us that Jesus died for sin as God was judging our sins upon Christ. Secondly, we see this event of the tearing of the veil in, uh, in verse 45. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter, would enter into the Holy of Holies. He would go behind the veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And it would be there on the, the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that he would offer up sacrifices for the nation of Israel. But when Christ died, the veil was torn in two. This was a very thick and big veil. And the tearing of this veil symbolized that what was, the, what was prevented people from approaching God was now torn asunder. So that in Jesus' death, we see that there is a now no, nothing else hindering people from being reconciled to God the Father, from approaching God the Father, because Christ has provided a new way to approach the Father. No longer were the priests and the sacrifices necessary for Israel to approach God the Father. All one needed was Jesus, because Jesus now becomes the veil, and Jesus becomes the chief high priest. We learn this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 20. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus, you see, is both the veil and the high priest through which we now have access to the Father. We don't need to go to human priests. We don't need to offer human sacrifices. We need to only go through Jesus Christ because the sacrifice has been paid once and for all for all our sins. Praise the Lord. And then thirdly, there's the sign of Christ's final breath. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. It was an unusual for any person who was crucified to, to cry out with a loud voice. 
You see, crucifixion was a long, excruciating suffering, death, because it was slow death by asphyxiation. As their lungs filled with fluids, and they would have to lift themselves up in order to breathe. And so, of course, they're getting weak. The weaker and slower, as they, they get lower, they start being suffocated to death, not getting the oxygen that they need. But the fact, and, use, and, and, and always, the, the death would lead, would be a quiet death at the end. And so it was unusual for Jesus to, to speak out loud, before dying. It was unusual that Jesus also dies so relatively quickly, six hours after being crucified. The crucifixion was designed to be a slow death that would sometimes last three days. The unusual nature of Jesus' final moments indicates that Jesus, Jesus cho- die, chose to die of his own accord. No one took his life from him. When he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Jesus at that point chose to die. He gave up his willingly, his life willingly at that moment, for he was in control. He willingly gave his life to pay the price for the sin of many. And all who witnessed these things could tell that this was no ordinary man who died, for no one dies with crying out with a loud voice and then dying so quickly and particularly saying what he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The centurion responds first in verse 47. And he responds by praising God. He gives glory to God. He recognized that Jesus was innocent. Matthew and Mark, he says, truly this man was innocent. Matthew and Mark also tell us that, in fact, he says not only does Jesus was innocent, but he says, truly this man was the Son of God. And the response of the centurion in recognizing Jesus for who he is and, and is an indication, a reminder to us that Jesus came not just to save his own people, the Jews, but he came to save the world, including Gentiles like this Roman centurion. In verse 48, we also see that the Jewish crowds also respond. They witness these things too. And their response is one of guilt. They begin beating their breasts. It's a sign of, 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 of sorrow, of repentance, of, of guilt, turmoil really. Whether there was a genuine heart repentance or not, that, that, that's still to be seen. We actually will see that many of them do turn to Christ on the day of Pentecost. But among those witnesses who saw Jesus' death were those who had followed him, his disciples, his acquaintances, as Luke puts it, the women who had served him, from these who had traveled to him with him all the way from Galilee, and they were standing at a distance. You would think they would be standing right up front. When your loved one is dying, are you not there right at their bedstand? Are you not right there right close up to them? Are you not right there at their feet? But his disciples, his acquaintances, were standing at a distance because they were afraid. They were discouraged. They had seen Jesus, whom they thought was the Christ, be arrested, beaten, and it was a, he, was, he was horribly disfigured by this point because of the lashings. And they were standing at a distance because they were discouraged. 
But they too, as they witnessed Jesus die in this way, would in in a short time become transformed saints who would change and overturn and upturn the world with their passion for Christ. They already knew that he was an on, no ordinary man. But his death was a reminder to them that he was the son of God. That he came to seek and save that which was lost. And he did so on the cross. The events surrounding Jesus' death reveals himself to be the son of God. Who willingly endured the wrath of God upon sin. He received God's judgment in order to make a new way with the veil being torn so that people may access the Father. And he poured out himself to death for the sins of the world. Only the Son of God, only Christ our King could die for our sins. And we know that Jesus willingly gave up his life for us. No one took it from him. Luke's record of Jesus' crucifixion and and death remain as a testimony for us today, for you and me. In it, we've seen the story, a sad story of Christ's suffering and agony, his death on the cross. And may we not like the, the little boy and wonder where God was. For when we understand what has taken place, we understand that God was there. That it was God who was there hanging on the cross to die for our sins, for you and me. And he did not, he was not compelled by anyone to go there. Nor could anyone, nor did anyone, could anyone compel him to do otherwise. For he came for this very purpose, to seek and save the lost, and to give his life a ransom for many. He had prayed that night in the garden, Father, yet not my will, yet your will be done. And he willingly drank the fully of the cup that the Father had given to him. He drank it all. He experienced the full wrath of God for sin, the wrath, the punishment for sin that you deserve and I deserve. He took upon the cross because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And like the witnesses who saw it, how will you and I respond? Jesus' sovereign control in his crucifixion and death that we see in this text should encourage us and it motivates us. And I hopefully, and I'm just leave you with three quick questions that you may meditate upon this week. Hopefully as you see Christ's sovereignty in his death, does it give you a clearer sense of who Jesus is? And does it give you a greater conviction of your sin as we see what Jesus endured for you and me? Does it give you a stronger faith to take up your cross and follow him? For Jesus came to die for sinners like you and me. Let us always keep our eyes on on Christ. 
Let us deny ourselves daily. Let us take up our cross and follow him. Let's take the footsteps that Simon of Cyrene took on that day that Jesus died.